You are listening to Guns and God, the podcast that brings faith and politics into conversation with particular interest in extremism. My name's Helen Painter and my co-presenter is Matthew Feldman. And in this first podcast, we thought we'd introduce ourselves and talk a little bit about what we had in mind for this series. Uh, Matthew, it's really great to uh, have met you in the last few months and have had some conversations over Zoom, um, found an area of mutual interest. Well, and I think more than that, that it's an area maybe of public interest as well, where I think seeing some rising extremism and certainly the, the work of my center, which we'll hear a little bit about later, has been um, really trying to chart that and trying to understand what that means. Um, but we also think that the questions of religiosity and the way in which that may be um, changing uh, over over last century, let alone over the last millennia, even over the last few months um, in places like the United States, make this, I, I think, you know, quite a propitious discussion and a very kind of exciting partnership, at least for me. Let's introduce ourselves a little bit. Um, so you are director of the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right. Have I got that right? That's correct. And we're about 30 months old now. And CAR, as we like to call it, is um, really kind of a network, a vehicle for a, a simple idea, which is to publicly disseminate and make accessible um, insights into right-wing extremism. Uh, both going back historically, you know, it's about a century since we saw the emergence of the first uh, fascist or far-right groups. Um, so, but also to go back geographically beyond Europe, beyond, let's say, North America, and to tease out some of the, the terms, for example. I'll give you one that most people have heard of as white supremacy, and that absolutely pertains to white majority countries like the United States currently or parts of Europe. But the far right isn't limited to those places. And we've seen notable far right gains in India and Brazil. And I think that that's incumbent upon us to explain that, to explain why it's a global phenomenon, what appeal it might have, because I don't think it's terribly helpful to say, if you're a far right voter, you're stupid, demonized, and can never be brought back into the you know, community of a liberal democracy. Mm. Um, so I think that we have to interrogate those things, but also maybe interrogate some of our own assumptions and some of our own critiques. So one of the things that's come up, um, I think very powerfully in, in CAR, has been that the whole field didn't do a very good job first of, of, of listening to female scholars. That's uh, clear and certainly not just a problem of the far right studies. But, you know, again, historically, I think you probably have three men to every, every woman in the field. Mm -hmm. So that was already something that was noticeable. And perhaps directly because of that, some of the hard questions about um, gender for far right activists were being ignored the way in which maybe they dealt with sexuality, the way in which perhaps there was some female representation and agency in some of these groups. Those weren't really questions that were being asked. So I think it's hopefully a group that is pushing things out accessibly, but is also pretty reflective about ways in which we can do better in, in being carriers of that message to the public. Because to me, if CAR is about anything, it's about really trying to engage the public on issues that you know, absolutely uh, impact upon their lives. Hmm. I came across you, I guess, last year because I came to your, I think it was your first annual conference, wasn't it? It was. Um, in, in London in the summer of 2019, which uh, I came as a, someone who knows very little about this, but was quite interested um, and found actually a whole range of um, disciplines and both people, academics and practitioners um, in the room. It was a really interesting, stimulating time. Well, and thank you for saying that, because that's the other kind of more implicit thing I think about if we're, what we're trying to do is engage the public and make it accessible. What it isn't is just the same 
familiar academic voices who, you know, have been working on this, it must be said, you know, for decades and decades and decades and producing some really excellent work. Um, but that stuff isn't the kind of things that necessarily people who might be your newspaper readers are going to pick up. It's just the, the nature of these, these kinds of things. So, so working with third sector organizations and charities, working with um, governments and practitioners seems to me a really important um, way of expressing this, which is that we are going to be a broad tent and work with any mainstream group that is concerned about uh, right-wing extremism. And that has oftentimes put us in a slightly awkward position because some of the groups in which we work with from, let's say, conservative groups right the way through to, to you know, self-defined leftist groups, even socialist groups, you know, those aren't people that tend to go to coffee very much. And huh. I, I am absolutely insistent that we are going to not ask those questions at the door. We're not going to police anybody's politics in that way. You know, we're not going to also endorse criminality or what have you, um, you know, like obvious mm-hmm. um, in, in, in that what we're trying to do is get as many people inside our Venn diagram, inside our circle as possible, because we think that this is a problem that has many different faces and has um, a great need for, you know, different people to weigh in, different academics, uh, different practitioners, um, even different people who have been former extremists can give us some insights that we wouldn't necessarily able to be gleaning for ourselves. And I think the time has probably passed for the kind of, at least what I see in this space is the kind of moral superiority and competitiveness and all of that kind of stuff. Like I just, I, Carr doesn't care about that. At least so long as I'm the director, we are not going to make our decisions based on that. It's going to be about pretty practical. Here's a problem. How can we help to solve it? I think that's fantastic. I really admire that um, uh, sort of generosity of spirit, actually. It's something that we've tried to replicate in, in or tried to do in, in, in our, this, my own study centre. Well, and that's I, and I'd love to turn to that, but I I think probably that you're you're giving me m- maybe too much credit. You know, there's some self interest there as well. <laughs> Someone like me probably wouldn't thrive under a fascist regime for all sorts of reasons, not least because uh, you know I don't shut up and keep my in my opinions <laughs> to myself. Um, but also, I think that um, you know the work that uh, I and a number of colleagues have done has has really um, I think been visible, and and you know we're not going to be shouted down or shut down on this precisely because it is a transnational threat that is amongst the greatest terroristic threats that we have. But, it, you know, again, the headline writers will talk about those, those violent and terroristic threats, and rightly so. But threats to community cohesion and to people's everyday sense of lived multiculturalism also matters. You know, the mm-hmm. fear that people who might be at the sharp end of that hate, for example, uh, I was just on a conversation with somebody who was talking to me about how um, Britain's first so-called mosque invasions and literal what they call them as Christian patrols are terrifying people in local areas. They're literally like breaking into kind of refugee shelters. Are you a Christian? What is your value? What are you doing here? Um, and, you know, it also shows perhaps that for all of our, you know, kind of to transition a little bit towards towards your work, for all of our um, thinking about this brave new secular world, identities really matter. And, uh, for example, religious identity really matters to people, the vast majority of them in the world today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and perhaps ignoring that or even ridiculing that might be a little bit hasty. And I know that that's something you know, not directly engaged with your center, but asking some of those questions that, dare I say, uh, might have put people off about the Bible, for example. Isn't it a, isn't the Old Testament a violent book? Um, well, the Center for the Study of, of the Bible and Violence doesn't duck that question, does it? No, we've raised it head on. What brought me to, uh, what brought me to, to establish a center, really? 
Um, well, could you say maybe a little bit more about that? Obviously, you've had those interests. And I know that you've also, you know, unlike me, written extensively on the subject in which of <laughs> your kind of intellectual leadership um, is on display. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I, I started, well, I started, actually started life as a doctor, but leaving that aside, I began this particular journey um, as a Baptist minister um, with a PhD in the Old Testament um, and very interested um, and also, you know, perfectly honest, quite disturbed by um, biblical violence and how we interpret that and how we translate, well, not translate, but how we translate that for our own culture today. So that was where the journey started really for me. And I continue to work in that area, but I don't think it's that particular area that is directly relevant to our conversations um, but what I discovered as I was thinking hard about these texts was some of the ways that they were being used um, that these and other other biblical texts as well were being used to uh, endorse violence to perpetuate it to justify it and so on from um, the use of the conquest of Canaan narratives in the um, colonialization white colonialization of, of, of what is now the United States for example um, and, you know, they were used in uh, the uh, Rwandan genocide and, you know, a hundred other examples. And so I became very interested in how the Bible um, is employed in a violent world, both how it's employed negatively um, and how we can, how I and others of interest, that interest can offer um, a more positive and constructive way of employing scripture in those ways. So I look at, um, I look at, um, nationalism for example I've done written a little bit about the Bible and nationalism I've just um, written some stuff about the use of the Bible in domestic abuse um, and a whole load of uh, other examples and can I just um, pause on the the domestic abuse one because I think it's also the product of publication that has just come out and is again not just as I understand it not just saying here is some some uh, interpretation and exegesis on the theology as it relates to this but also this is how this relates to the year 2020. Yeah I mean the, the book that I've just published is um in fact, as we record, it's not, it's not yet out, but I had my first copy in my hand this week. Um, That's uh, out as far as I'm concerned, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, it'll be, it'll be audible for anyone who's interested. Um, it's, it's called, um, The Bible Doesn't Tell Me So, Why You Don't Have to Submit to Domestic Abuse and Coercive Control. And so it's actually addressed directly to people who are experiencing um, domestic abuse, particularly women, because um, from, from the qualitative research I've done in this area, um, or that, or that well, I should say, the fairly scanty research. But you know, conversations I've had um, suggest that where the Bible is employed in domestic abuse, that's happening in fairly conventional um, marriages, um, and it's generally male on female violence that that it seems to be in, being employed for um, endorsing. So yeah, so it's addressed to women who are experiencing domestic abuse in those settings, and and I'm. Um, you know, it breaks my heart to have to write it. And it breaks my heart that this is an yeah. issue and that the Bible is being used in this way. Well, and it's sad that it needs people like you to write it. You know, we would all be much better off if that didn't happen. But I think it's also a credit to you for, you know, dare I say, yoking your professional and theological interests to, you know, what are obviously still concerns, you know, urgent, alarming concerns today. And um, maybe just by way of dipping our toe into to things that 
are going to bring us together in some of our discussions that, um, you know, in your, in your new book, I think you very welcomely mentioned uh, coercive control. And um, rather than, for example, words like cult, which can be quite inflammatory, uh, undue influence rather than, let's say, brainwashing. Mm-hmm. And it, one of the things that I, I suspect over the course of our discussions will come up is the kind of quasi-religious conspiracy theories, not just that have been around for a long time, some of them anti-Semitic and some of them, um, you know, uh, purportedly, you know, uh, left-wing or right-wing or, you know, all sorts of weird and wild stuff, but one that we've been seeing that perhaps has has been different in terms of the demographic take-up has been the QAnon conspiracy theory, Mm -hmm. which has just made enormous inroads into the United States, into the kind of uh, dare I say, suburban church-going community that was pretty inoculated to some of these conspiracy theories that you could kind of say, look, we know the sort of hot and bothered paranoid style that appeals, the, the kind of personality that this appeals to. And th- a lot of the people that we're seeing out in those QAnon marches are not it. Can you talk a bit more about QAnon? Because it's only just starting to kind of ping my radar. Um... So it's... Um, it. it, it its first kind of moment was in 2017 when someone, I guess you could say, invaded a pizza restaurant with a gun, fired that gun, basically saying, where are you keeping the children in the basement? And the guy at a pizza parlor is like, what in the hell are you talking about, you lunatic? Um, and it turns out, of course, that this was part of an online conspiracy theory that that essentially holds. I'm going to give the very, very basic view that uh, uh, democratic and media elites are... Um, engage in a cabal conspiracy to to control, obviously, the United States and to take out threats to their power. Their sort of, I guess you could say, the sort of the, the sort of petrol for their vehicle is the blood of children. Um, and now you're into your classic far right anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, but that they drain or drink the blood of children to give themselves, or or they drain the energy levels of children to give themselves powers over other people. Um, so it is very much, a, you know, not just a physical conspiracy theory, these children being captured, but it's a metaphysical one as well, is that they are doing this, you know, in a, in a way not dissimilar to Philip Pullman's kind of like removing the souls from children. Um, and it's all allegedly coordinated by one secret person named Q, um, who's been motivated by, um, you know, or at least overlaps heavily with some of Donald Trump's personnel. And we're seeing this stuff go rocketing straight at the heart of your, you know, broadly speaking, white, conservative, middle-class, suburban, God-fearing people um, that are just, they just weren't the, the same sorts of types. Even the John Birch Society, these guys weren't you know, they were the fringe of the John Birch Society rather than its "quote unquote" respectable face. So, so many of these people are just—you uh, just said this—but just kind of to, to ponder that for a moment. Many of these people are just kind of ordinary, really well-meaning, well-intentioned folk who've who've somehow been just kind of duped by these these conspiracies. Is that right? I, I completely agree with you. And one of the things that I'm I'm thinking about, I don't even have an argument about it, but it strikes me as an astonishing thing that will continue to come up in our discussions, I suspect, is that we now, through social media and um, the internet, basically, have more information at our fingertips, even if we're out and about with our um, our, our phone, you know, our mobile phone, uh, smartphone is the word I'm looking for. We actually have, statistically, more information in our hands in our smartphone than Nixon when he went to China in the 70s. His whole team did, right? Like, you have a world of knowledge on your phones or in an access your fingertips, but collectively, it's hard to think that our world has been much more gullible, uh, stupid might even be the word in some cases with like, here's the science on, for example, you know, not 
giving somebody a, a coronavirus or, um, you know, here's the basic stuff that suggests that um, widespread conspiracy to kidnap and, uh, you know, um, drain the blood of children is, you know, is crazy and has absolutely no credible information whatsoever. But to reformulate it is a kind of a more general proposition. It almost seems like the more knowledge the world individuals in the world have access to the less use that knowledge is to the collective. And that is a, a very strange and um, ironic proposition. It strikes me. It's one of the reasons why we need good journalism, isn't it? Rather than the rolling news cycle where you get information that may or may not be accurate because it's coming so quickly, but also it doesn't have any context because it's just coming all the time rather than that sort of slower, more measured analysis. Well, and I couldn't agree with you more, but I think there's another side to that. So I think that's their, you know, one of your push factors. But I also think that digital literacy is going to be increasingly important. And mm-hmm. that goes, all of us make the mistake sometimes of not, you know, sharing something you haven't verified or, you know, we're, we're getting in an eras of deep fakes and things like that where, where low information literacy is going to be a really, really bad thing for democratically, but mm-hmm. could also be in terms of, I don't know, somebody sharing new pictures of themselves or making a, a slur online when they're 15, you know, that stuff sticks with you. And I really do think that some of the understanding about digital literacy, it's really encompassed, you know, incumbent upon us to take that seriously mm-hmm. because I cannot see any state of affairs short of like, annihilation where the digital and social media is going to be less a part of our lives five years from now or 10 years from now. It's going to be more a part of our lives. And do you think at the, so, so this QAnon conspiracy is, is very, it's very heterogeneous, isn't it? There's a, kind of, it's like a hydra with, with so many different facets at the edges. Does it blur into truth? Are there places where you've got kind of false conspiracy mixed with, some 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 genuine stuff that's happening yeah i don't think you can have a, a conspiracy theory without some degree of what i would call you say truth but i i actually think it's like sophistic truth uh, you so you might start out by saying are you suggesting to me that there is never child abduction and child murder and child rape well nobody's going to hold that right um or are you suggesting to me that there haven't been conspiracies in the, I don't know, the assassination of kennedy that's a big one for QAnon. Of course there have been, you know, so, and there have been because there were legitimate questions that were raised about, for example, the Kennedy assassination. I'm not taking a position on it, but, you know, it's not like, you know, again, some of these things that raise conspiracy theories and some of them don't. And I think that they don't for very specific reasons. The one I give as an example to my students is, have you ever heard someone deny the existence of the Spanish Armada in 1588? This just never happened, right? Like, have you ever heard somebody say that the, for example, that the um, the Domesday Book is faked and that the um, 1066 and all that didn't happen? The, the the thing that I think is really important about that is we actually have three or four contemporary contemporary sources of information for, for example, the Norman Conquest. There's actually not that much information, but it's there. It's the Bayou Tapestry and what have you. How much information is there about the Holocaust? Well, actually, it's probably the best documented interlocking series of events in history, you know, between roughly 1941 and 1945, as we know, Holocaust denial is itself an entire industry. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's simply not about the availability or reliability of sources because there's no comparison to the Spanish Armada and the Holocaust. It's clearly something else. Mm-hmm. And so I think it seems to me that conspiracy theories are themselves by definition driven by a kind of uh, hidden agenda 
yeah. by the people who are putting them forward that is is purporting to explain diverse phenomena, not connected phenomena. We know that the six million Jews that were killed were a product of Nazi ideology, right? It's a connected phenomenon with a trajectory. And the people that are discounting it, more often than not, are trying to rehabilitate the Nazi ideology. The QAnon conspiracy theory seems to me one that is almost by definition targeted at, like you say, kind of good hearted, low information people who, mm. you know, start with the sophistic question. Would you sit around if you knew the, that children in your neighborhood were being raped and murdered? What kind of person wouldn't say, of course, I'll do whatever I can to stop that. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is it reaching into the UK? I, I'm just thinking about my own social media feed and um, I certainly noticed one particular young man that I, he kind of he and I used to go to the same church a while ago and we're Facebook friends as a result and he's been posting some really quite disturbing stuff recently and I'm watching it happen and think goodness me I think you are heading in that direction and so I think the Anglosphere is is not prepared for this generally but that so much of the architecture of QAnon is American elites now again it doesn't take much doing to say American elites plus, oh, this person has traveled to the US from mm -hmm. Britain or where have you. Mm -hmm. But I think that, again, what you probably need is a restocking in, let us say, Australian or British or Irish terms and go, ah, well, this is where our prime minister stroke, uh, you know, queen stroke, you know, whoever it is yeah, fits yeah. in. So I think that you need to do a bit of plugging in at that point. Um, but probably by implication, and I don't hold myself out to be an expert on Q, but by implication, it isn't a conspiracy that simply just stopped at American shores. I don't think any mm -hmm. Q purport, you know, supporter would say this is intrinsically and only an American phenomenon, even if like, again, all your cast of characters and your backdrop, your scenery is going to be American. I'm guessing that things like the Epstein scandal and the, that the connections with the royal family and so on would would lend themselves to that sort of thing bleeding out. Absolutely. You know, and, and again, the, the problem with conspiracy theories is of course those things happen, even if Q had preexisted, preexisted it. But even if it's things that aren't like that, that can be then appropriated yeah. by Q. So you had literally a pizzeria. Somebody went and held up a pizzeria and shot at it because they thought that under literally underneath where they are baking pizzas is some sort of like, you know, torture chamber for children. It's so crazy and it's so far removed because just some idiot put that on the, you know, on the internet and someone believed it and someone decided to do something about it. It's quite an extraordinary set of affairs, really, when you think about it, is that yeah, somebody is, is motivated by what I would assume is a desire not to see children abused. And, you know, it's probably motivated somewhere along the line by a desire to do right. But someone goes, uh, you know, presumably the police are involved. Nobody's, nobody's doing anything unless I literally get in my truck and drive there with a gun. Um, this is going to keep happening. Now, again, that kind of voluntarism is, is just um, the kind of chum in the water, I think, for political violence. Hmm. Yeah. So what we're going to do in these podcasts is have conversations like this, um, get some visitors in, get some. Uh, um, so what, what sort of things do you think we'll be talking about in the weeks to come? Well, and I, th I think some of it will also be led by some of our visitors and some of mm -hmm. our, um, you know, some of them, um, you know, very, very knowledgeable about the subjects that they're working on. And I hope that what you and I have done in thinking through some of those subjects are ones that are um, irrelevant 
to a cross section of audience. You know, one's questions dealing with gender, for example, or f- uh, I know that we've we've talked about anti-Semitism uh, mm-hmm. to an extent. We've also talked about um, uh, you know uh, Christian views of society and the way in which um, society could be or has been challenged to transform along Christian um, uh, bases. Uh, so I, it, it feels to me like we have a kind of, a, you know, a sort of a structure where broadly speaking, you and I are interested in extremism and, and of course, faith and where, where that intersects with liberalism. I don't know if you would perhaps disagree with me, but that feels like a really um, fascinating and broad landing zone where we have so many different people bringing their knowledge, um, you know, and insights onto the program. I think so. And, and as we've had informal conversations sort of before we started recording today, some of the some of the people we're thinking about inviting, um, I think really exciting uh, range of, of guests from um, academics to um, practitioners, um, maybe some politicians um, and, and academics in a range of disciplines as well. Uh, and hopefully, um, and I say this is a recovering academic, and ah. um, uh, but but also hopefully, again, speaking a language that people are going to find familiar. Uh, yeah. Those academics, and credit to them for doing specific stuff that is not understood by the general public. That's what mm-hmm. specialism is, right? But we're hoping that we ask those people to step a little bit outside of their perhaps specialist comfort area and, and talk about that to a general audience. Why is it what they're doing, for example, on question X, uh, let us say, for example, on misogyny and male supremacism and questions around gender, you know, step out of perhaps that really spe- specialist box where you're, you're gleaning your insights and tell us as a step back why this is important and why that work motivates you. And I think that one of the strengths, actually, of us being able to do this is because you and I have very different or, or quite different disciplines. Inevitably, whoever we have on, one of us is not going to know too much about their specialism and so we can kind of come in as as a little bit of a um you know as a sort of i don't know what the word is well, and I, <laughs> no dare i say I'd, I'd even go further than that um and I, certainly this goes more for you than me um but the, you know we're we're very interested by the people that is that are coming on and just mm. fascinated by the ideas and the exchange yeah and i know um now, now maybe this is because i'm not part of that world uh, as much anymore. It's such a privilege to be able to talk to these people and to to listen to those kinds of insights. And I know that, for example, over our conversations, it's so platitudinous to say I've learned a lot, but it's true. And it's made me not just learn a lot from you, but made me want to go out and learn a lot from myself because these are questions that I hadn't really been asking. And I'm grateful for that. I actually hope that even if there's a handful of listeners that get that from some of our guests, well, that's an achievement for me because I'm enjoying every step we're taking together anyway. Well, me too. And I guess it's probably the cat's out of the bag, but we're actually recording this um, preliminary um, podcast actually after we've done a few of the recordings. So you and I already know that we've got some really cracking episodes coming up, don't we? And I know that there's more in the bag as well because I think that we've got something that, you know, again, (laughs) auditors will vote with their feet one way or another, but it seems like it's something that is really engaging, topical, and I hope that through some of our networks, we can continue to bring people discussing, you know, these kinds of issues. And dare I say a lot of these issues, we're we're hearing from people who might break down some of our stereotypes and some of our assumptions, including mine, including mine about some of the guests where I might think, that person uh, is going to hold X politics. And actually when you drill down over an hour and you realize that people probably aren't team 
red and blue or team, you know, whatever the yeah. sort of tribal colors are, once you really dig underneath it, yes, they might be pretty consistent voters for that particular political party, but understanding what motivates them oftentimes in terms of values or spirituality or morality uh, and ethics is, is, is utterly fascinating and engaging. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose we, we would welcome listeners to make suggestions of people we could talk to um, or topics that, that they think might be of interest. We haven't got a ring, but hats are welcome, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes. So is there anything else that we want to say to, uh, to people on our first podcast? Um, I think you're right. Maybe just that we're, we would welcome. I'm on uh, mfeldman66 at gmail.com. Always welcome to have people write to me and to make suggestions. Um, you know, and in the way that I'm uh, hopefully acting on this podcast, I'm not going to engage in, you know, kind of, kind of aggressive trolling behavior. So I don't just, just ignore that, but people that write in good faith, just like the people that we talk with in good faith, I think are even are, you know, arguments and ideas that I vehemently disagree with. I think it's really important to give them a platform and to discuss them. Yeah, me too. And my, so my email address is painter with a Y painter H at Bristol hyphen baptist.ac.uk. But we'll put that on the podcast page as well. So uh, yeah, we welcome. Um, well, and you're, and I just say a, a final thing, you're, you're going to be too modest to say this yourself, but the lion's share of the thinking and the work is yours and it really wouldn't exist without you. So um, as, as the sort of, you know, a person in the sidecar, as you're motoring along, I'm just, um, <laughs> well, you know, the scenery is great and I'm just loving it. So thank you very much. Well, I'm enjoying our conversations and I've been enjoying our three-way conversations with guests as well. And I was thinking just, just the other day, what a, what a privilege it is to be able to, um, I mean, <laughs> starting, I recommend everybody start a podcast series because it entitles you to write to complete strangers who've got really interesting <laughs> ideas and say, can I talk to you for an hour? Mm. <laughs> and we've, we've really enjoyed doing that and looking forward to future ones. Well, and you've, you've brought people that, uh, you know, I wasn't aware of and uh, have now started reading their work. And I hope that that's something that we both continue yeah. to gosh, I just didn't know about this argument or I hadn't really seen um, such and such a report. And maybe that's just the last thing to, um, you know, for me to kind of sign off on is one of the things we try to do with these, you know, interesting uh, people that we're, we're speaking with is, is maybe think about a text that they've written or a little mm -hmm. short piece and, and try to highlight that in the program that maybe, you know, listeners might wish to, to read because we're really trying to spin some of our questions off, you know, some of the, the public writings that some of our guests have done. Yeah, and that's always been really interesting to engage in advance of uh, the conversations with those ideas. Good. So shall we just um, mention a few of the guests who we've got coming up in future weeks? Not necessarily in this order, but we have got... Dr. Julia DeCook, who is a senior fellow at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right and also leads our gender research unit. We'll be talking about misogyny and male supremacism. We've got Steve Harmon, who is a um, Baptist theologian in America, and he's talking about the myth of redemptive violence in relation to gun culture over there. Also taking a theological and uh, Christian perspective is Dr. Jonas Kurlberg from the University of Durham, who's really talking to us about some of his work on uh, a group around mid-century called The Moot and the way in which visions of a new society have been part and parcel of Christian thinking and Christian social teaching uh, for millennia. Uh, we've got Keith Kahn Harris, who is a Jewish scholar and a sociologist who's writing about anti-Semitism, thinking particularly about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and all of the conversations around there, and has a really quite startling proposal to put. Um, I'm not going to say too much more about that, but very interesting conversation we had with him. 
And I think we had one more uh, we've recorded so far, and that was our very first one. Um, that was Liam Liebert. What a fun that was as well, yeah. um, because it felt like we were really talking in the kind of the heat of the moment as the mm. sort of backdrop of the Black Lives Matter protests. But also, I think that was the, the sort of week after the toppling of the Colston statue. So yeah. talking about history and the way in which it's commemorated with a historian who I think had just recently finished his PhD at the University of Sheffield. Um, that was fascinating. Yeah, really enjoyed that. So we really hope that uh, you'll be tuning in for the next podcast. We're going to aim to release them probably once a fortnight. Um, and uh, Matthew, it's a pleasure co-hosting with you. Helen, the pleasure is really mine. And I'm just excited to do, um, well, to carry on and see where this takes us. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you.